These are not the toxins you're looking for. Five and a half Jedi mind tricks to help understand environmental toxins. We often hear statistics that every day thousands of new synthetic chemicals are introduced into our everyday environments. We also often hear how many of these chemicals do not break down and accumulate in our bodies. Environmental chemicals can be seen like the dark side of the force from the Star Wars franchise, ubiquitous evil matter flowing through all of us causing uncontrollable and irreversible destruction. Environmental chemicals have been suggested to cause all sorts of conditions such as cancer, obesity, developmental issues, neurodegenerative disease and autoimmunity, just to name a few. It can be depressing and overwhelming, particularly when considering there have been well-proven cases of localised poisoning from industrial accidents or mismanagement. No surprise, many of us are suspicious that the inescapable toxins are ravaging our health. Many yearn for a more natural and purer time than now and put in considerable effort and money to live a clean and organic life. Is there nuance to this narrative? Can our minds and perceptions influence the fate of the script? Are all chemicals toxins? Are we all at the mercy of the dark side of the toxin force or can we cultivate a positive force to provide some physiological immunity? Can our conscious mind, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, convince the stormtroops of our subconscious mind that sometimes these aren't really the toxins that it's looking for? Could other factors, which are more in our control, be impacting our health and well-being? To find out, we're going to learn about an arithmetic archbishop and a pessimistic porn star. We're going to look at a man who, in an attempt to use rocks to tell the time, found himself seeing the Matrix. We're going to find out why Abraham Lincoln was so angry and learn about Aaron Brockovich's opportunity to make a sequel movie and I'm going to potentially ruin some of your favourite pop songs with terrible puns. Welcome, I'm Nathan Rose and this is The Sift Podcast, a show where we sift through the sea of information in areas such as health, nutrition, medicine and psychology in an attempt to get a better sense of what it all means. Using science and stories, I aim to synthesise the information so that you are up to date and informed on topics that matter to your health and well-being. We will learn from lessons of the past, but also be excited about innovation and therapies on the horizon. Now, let's sift through the information. In October 2012, a small town in New York State called Leroy became the centre of attention due to a mysterious outbreak of neurological symptoms among high school students. It first began with Katie Krutwurst, a high school senior, popular cheerleader and a straight-A student, who one day awoke from a nap and suddenly experienced violent involuntary movements and uncontrollable outbursts, resembling Tourette's syndrome. Her jaw clenched, her face contorted, and she began twitching and shouting seemingly against her will. Katie's symptoms continued, and a few weeks later her close friend and fellow cheerleader, Thera Sanchez, also awoke from a nap in an uncontrollable state, first stuttering and then twitching with her arms involuntarily flailing and head jerking. Next, two weeks after that, another fellow cheerleader, Linda Parker, suddenly developed tics, hums and arm swings. Then another cheerleader, Chelsea Dumas, also began making strange noises and the same uncontrollable movements. By this stage, both Katie and Thera required the use of a wheelchair as the muscular jerks became so violent that it caused them to fall over. 
The numbers grew. 18 of the 800 school children were affected, including students outside the cheerleading group. The symptoms became even more problematic as some experienced convulsions. Next, a 38-year-old local woman, not connected to the school, developed symptoms. By this stage, there was a media storm and Katie and Thera were interviewed and featured on many of the major national TV networks. A significant portion of the media felt that these Leroy residents were showing signs of environmental toxicity. The locals had several suggestions as the source of the toxin, which all came from the one origin. To misquote Chris Martin from Coldplay, and they were all Jell-O. Leroy was the birthplace of Jell-O, or jelly as it's called in many countries outside of the US. In the early half of the 20th century, Leroy was a boom town thanks to Jell-O, but in 1964, Jell-O had become too big for Leroy and the factory was relocated to a larger town. And it was this former factory site that rumours began spreading that this was the cause of the mysterious illness. Reporters heard stories from locals that when the factory was operational, a creek ran through the town and it used to change colour depending on which jello flavour was being manufactured on that day. Another local recalled a barrel in the river where the children used to swim. Then there were reports of a yellow-orange ooze one side of the athletic field where the cheerleaders practised. Outside of jello-related incidents, the media cited stories of crop dusting and fracking, but above all, there was one emerging theory of the source of the toxicity, the old train crash of 1971. In December of that year, a freight train hauling chemicals derailed and spilled an estimated 110,000 litres of solvents into the soil and groundwater, only a few miles from the school. It was the largest spill of trichloroethylene in US history, a chemical with known neurotoxic properties. Strangely, the story ignited after one of the affected students' mothers found a note in her letterbox with a tip-off about the train accident. Even more oddly, perhaps, the mother then made contact with none other than celebrity investigator Erin Brockovich. The mother implored Brockovich to hunt down the toxin in Leroy and bring justice to the small community. Brockovich rose to fame from her dogged investigation and subsequent uncovering of industrial poisoning of another US small town of Hinckley. As you're probably aware, this story was so famous and intriguing that it made it into a Hollywood blockbuster starring Julia Roberts. With the evidence mounting in Leroy that it was strongly hinting at a repeat of Hinckley, Brockovich quickly assembled her team and travelled to Leroy. Could this be a repeat? Could we see a sequel to Aaron Brockovich? Would it be as good as a sequel as Empire Strikes Back was to Star Wars? Or could it be a flop like the 1978 made-for-TV movie Star Wars Holiday Special? We'll find out shortly, but first we need to explore a few other toxins and a couple of other related Jedi mind tricks. Angry Abe Abraham Lincoln, the 16th President of the United States, served during one of the most tumultuous periods in American history, presiding over the country during the American Civil War. It was generally noted that Lincoln's demeanour and temperament during his presidency contributed to his reputation of one of America's greatest leaders. His ability to remain composed, his sense of humour, his empathy, and his unwavering commitment to his principles helped him navigate the challenges of the time and leave a lasting legacy in American history. However, there is evidence that prior to his presidency, he was far from unflappable and was prone to rapid fits of rage and anger. Some suggest this may be caused by a toxin 
and if it had gone unchecked, perhaps history would have taken a different route. Rather extensive reports and anecdotes describe how in the years prior to his presidency, Lincoln demonstrated bizarre behaviour, moments of incapacitating depression, marked insomnia, forgetfulness, incoordination, tremors, and most notably, sudden outbursts of rage. In 1859, Lincoln's law partner and biographer, William H. Herndon, described an occasion where he turned so angry that he looked like Lucifer in an uncontrollable rage. A year earlier in 1858, during a political debate, Lincoln became so incensed at an accusation that in his rage he grabbed an innocent nearby colleague by the back of the neck. Witnesses said he lifted his colleague out of his seat like effortlessly picking up a kitten by the scruff of its neck. Abraham shook him so ferociously as part of his verbal rebuttal to his opponent that the colleague's teeth chattered and Lincoln had to be restrained. Reports of Lincoln's early adulthood appeared free of outbursts of rage. However, there is frequent mention and omission from Lincoln himself of suffering from melancholy. He experienced a couple bouts of depression from matters of the heart, namely unrequited love. Even abandonment from a work colleague precipitated the melancholy. The consensus of the day was that Lincoln's melancholy, using the framework of humoral medicine, was due to the build-up of black bile. Indeed, part of this melancholic constitution was constipation from the black bile, a symptom Lincoln also suffered. Fortunately, it seemed, for such a malady as melancholy, there was a remedy. Known as blue pill or blue mass, there are numerous suggestions that Lincoln turned to this remedy in the years prior to his presidency. By Herndon's account, the blue pills did the trick for Lincoln's constipation. I mean, what kind of biographer are you if you don't report on your subject's bowel motions? Whilst Hendren was noting bowel motions, Lincoln was noting that perhaps these blue pills could be linked to his anger and mood swings. Five months after his March 1861 inauguration, it was reported that the new president stopped taking the blue pills because they made him cross. Whether a consequence of discontinuing the blue pills or just a coincidence, Numerous anecdotes describe how Lincoln's rage soon melted away and was replaced with tales of stoicism and measured demeanour, particularly during times of stress. That's not a toxin, this is a toxin. So, what were in these mysterious blue pills? Recently, researchers dug up the old recipe for the blue pills and recreated the formulation. The finished product looked like round pallets the size of peppercorns. The ingredients are only a few and come from all natural sources, licorice root, confection of dead rose petals, rose water, honey and sugar. That makes up two thirds of the weight of the pallets. The remaining third is thought to be the main active ingredient to combat constipation and melancholy, mercury. That remaining third made up of mercury was potent. Each pallet packed a punch. Analysis of the blue pills revealed that one pallet contained 65 milligrams of mercury. Consider that the usual prescription was one pill three times a day. A melancholic patient would be ingesting 185 milligrams a day. Now consider that the governmental guidelines today advise people should not ingest mercury above 21 micrograms a day. Abraham Lincoln could have been routinely been ingesting mercury more than 9,000 times the allowable amount. 
weighing up all the historical evidence and the modern recreation of the blue pills, it sounds more than plausible that Honest Abe medicated himself into mercury poison, which result in rage, insomnia, incoordination, forgetfulness, and tremors. Mad as a Hatter History is littered with accounts of mercury poisoning from occupational hazards and industrial accidents. In the mid-19th century, the phrase mad as a hatter became popularised after it was noted that hatters developed shakes, hallucinations and psychosis. The felt used for making hats were cured by mercurious nitrate and these mercury vapours were inadvertently inhaled by the hatters. In 1865, based on these observations, Lewis Carroll introduced the world to the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. Around a hundred years later, a significant mercury incident occurred that helped define the modern environmental movement and our understanding of this neurotoxin. In the 1950s in the Japanese city of Minamata, a factory was releasing waste into the local bay. One of the chemical byproducts being released into Minamata Bay was methyl mercury which led to the contamination of the local seafood and water supplies. This resulted in widespread mercury exposure amongst the population. Thousands of people developed a loss of sensation in their hands and feet, narrowed vision, hearing difficulties, and slurred or unclear speech. The severely affected individuals experienced convulsions, loss of consciousness, and even death. The condition was labelled Minamata disease, and this incident had a significant and lasting impact on public awareness of the dangers of mercury pollution. The findings from Minamata Bay was the first major documentation of mercury accumulation in the food chain, particularly in seafood, and also the effects on pregnancy and neurodevelopment. Pregnant women who suffered Minamata disease were estimated to be consuming 225 micrograms a day of mercury, now this is nowhere near Abraham Lincoln's insane intake of 185 milligrams a day, but it's still about 100 times higher than what is now considered the upper limit. Sadly, this intake in Japanese women was so toxic that it caused mental retardation in their offspring. Since the reporting of Minamata Bay, numerous communities consuming high amounts of seafood have been researched, especially in the context of pregnancy and neurodevelopment. For example, in the Faroe Islands, which is roughly halfway between the United Kingdom and Iceland, the inhabitants traditionally ate a large amount of whale meat and have recorded blood levels of mercury of 22 micrograms per litre. Considering other studies around the world that find healthy people have blood levels of less than 1 microgram per litre, such as in US, Canada and Germany, and the US Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, have determined that methylmercury levels up to 5.8 micrograms per litre of blood are safe, we can see that the levels in Faroe Islands are significantly high. Detailed research on the pregnant Faroe Islanders has found that prenatal mercury exposure appears to cause permanent adverse effects on cognition. High prenatal mercury exposure correlates to an IQ score of 2.2 points lower than low exposed individuals. Our first Jedi mind trick is to understand that it's not the chemical that makes the poison, but the dose that makes the poison. Abraham Lincoln, from the best we can tell, was acutely very toxic. Minamata disease is frank toxicity, and to a lesser extent, the Faroe Islands show toxicity. However, people with much lower levels of mercury appear to be unaffected. Paracelsus once said, what is there that is not a poison? 
All things are poison, and nothing is without poison. Solely the dose determines the thing that is not a poison. You can overdose on water if you drink enough of it. So, when it comes to environmental chemicals, even though they are synthetic and have scary-sounding chemical names, it is the dose that is more important than the actual substance. There are often fears around persistent organic pollutants, or otherwise known as POPs, such as bisphenol A, or pesticides like glyphosate, or the latest is microplastics. Whilst we're exposed to them and there can be traces detected in our tissues, overall, the evidence to date suggests that for the average Joe or Jane, they're exposed to levels much, much lower than is known to cause any adverse effects. There are exceptions in people whose occupations put them at greater risk. For example, firefighters can be exposed to high levels of flame retardants in their job, and they have increased risk of some cancers. So it's typically people doing risky jobs that are more exposed. If your job isn't sexy enough for the profession to have a best-selling pin-up calendar, like firemen, then you're probably unlikely to be exposed to dangerous levels of toxins. Accountants don't have pin-up calendars, and accountants aren't getting poisoned by office stationery. Now, to our next Jedi mind trick, which adds another layer of nuance to our first Jedi mind trick. Let's continue looking at Mercury to understand this. A similar community to the Faroe Islands has been studied and it can be used to show the nuance of toxicity. The Seychelles are an archipelago of 115 islands in the Indian Ocean, off the coast of East Africa, and its residents consume about 57 kilograms of fish per person per year. Researchers have followed pregnant mothers and their offspring until early adulthood, monitoring neurodevelopment and cognition. During pregnancy, the mothers had high blood mercury levels of 23.6 micrograms per litre, which is slightly higher than pregnant women from the Faroe Islands. However, when it came to neurodevelopment and cognitive outcomes, the results showed a surprising difference to the Faroe Islands. When measured in early childhood, those who had had higher prenatal exposure to mercury scored better on neurodevelopmental and cognitive tests than children with lower prenatal exposure to mercury. As the children grew older, the differences disappeared, but unlike the Faroe Islands, the children from the Seychelles who had high prenatal exposure did not show any permanent adverse effects. What could explain the differences between the two groups? The researchers suggest that the seafood consumed in the Seychelles community contain nutrients that confer protection against mercury, which may be less abundant or absent in the Faroe Islands, where they consume mostly whale meat. Several studies point towards omega-3 fatty acids and selenium in the seafoods as potent protective factors against the harmful effects of mercury. Regarding the neuroprotective effects of seafood consumption, this is becoming apparent at the other end of our lifespan. There is concern that mercury could be contributing to the development and severity of Alzheimer's disease, and some warn of avoiding fish and seafood. However, multiple studies show the opposite. While seafood consumption has been shown to be linked to accumulation of mercury in the brain in elderly subjects, there is no correlation with brain mercury in Alzheimer's. In fact, a study conducted on elderly Canadian residents found the opposite. Mercury accumulation was linked to a significant lower risk of Alzheimer's. The connection between high mercury and low Alzheimer's, however, only held true if the subject also possessed high blood levels of omega-3 fatty acids. Other research shows that the protective effects of seafood, despite containing mercury, appear to be mostly helpful for those who carry the ApoE4 genes, the genes that carry an increased risk for the disease. Mercury 
Not only is toxicity the result of the dose, perhaps the net effect is the dose minus the effects of our protective mechanisms. Our bodies can detoxify, nullify, and sometimes be frankly resilient to toxins, even if the toxins are present in high amounts. Last episode, we heard how Russian Karelian residents had high body levels of common environmental chemicals. Despite that, they had much lower incidence of allergy and autoimmunity compared to the nearby Finnish Karelians, probably due to the more abundant anti-inflammatory microbiome. Similar findings were discovered in East Germany when the Berlin Wall collapsed. Researchers noted much more air pollution in East Germany compared to West Germany, yet the East Germans had significantly lower incidence of asthma. Speaking of air pollution, several randomised clinical trials have shown people living in areas of high air pollution who were supplemented with nutrients such as vitamin C, vitamin E, beta-carotene, omega-3 fatty acids or sulfurophane from broccoli extract have all shown to partially or completely mitigate the adverse effects of air pollution. For example, Brazilian workers at a coal power electric plant who are exposed to high levels of air pollution were supplemented with 500 milligrams a day of vitamin C and 800 milligrams a day of vitamin E for six months. At the end of the trial, the workers' markers of oxidative stress reduced back to the normal range and their body's main detoxification molecule, glutathione, increased to the normal range. In fact, the workers' blood chemistry now appeared identical to a healthy control group who were unexposed to the air pollution. Our protection against environmental toxins can extend beyond supplementing nutrients and plant extracts. Exercise is known to improve our detoxification systems and boost glutathione, and there is mounting evidence that regular exercise is linked to protection against environmental chemicals. As a proof of concept, a study on mice showed that mice who were poisoned with PCBs to the level that they developed diabetes could prevent or reverse the diabetes if they were given a treadmill to run on. I also mentioned in the previous podcast on the microbiome, the use of green walls to help improve the diversity of our microbiome. Research in Sydney CBD has shown the use of green walls both outside and within offices dramatically reduce air pollution such as particulate matter, ozone and nitrogen dioxide, particularly during the 2019-2020 summer bushfires when there was hazardous levels of air pollution in the city. Overall, we can see that despite being exposed to environmental chemicals, there are protective and proactive steps we can take, in the case of exercise literal steps, that can offer considerable protection against toxins. Essentially, you can build up the good side of the force to protect you against toxins which are often in our environment. The second Jedi mind trick is to focus on what is protective rather than what is destructive. Eat well, exercise, expose yourself to green space, and supplement if warranted. Now, let's look at our third Jedi mind trick. What's my age again? One of the most important discoveries in science and improvements in public health came from a frustrated and seemingly obsessed researcher trying to work out the age of the Earth. Claire Patterson was born in a small country town in Iowa in 1922 and graduated with a degree in chemistry during World War II. In 1944, the naive 22-year-old found himself working on the Manhattan Project, completely unaware of the scope or significance of what he was involved in. Whilst working on the project, he was exposed to the technique of mass spectroscopy, 
which enables one to identify and measure the mass of molecules and atoms. After the war, with his experience in mass spectroscopy, Patterson secured a position at the University of Chicago with the task of determining the age of the Earth. At the time, there were still references to the Earth's age based on a literal interpretation of the genealogical timelines provided in the Bible. According to a calculation from a 17th century archbishop, the world was created on the dusk of October 22, 4004 BC, making the Earth an estimated 6,000 years old. Pattinson's initial calculations of the Earth's age using mass spectroscopy wasn't proving any better of a technique than the Archbishop poring over the Bible. In fact, not only was Pattinson's estimated age of the Earth seemingly far too young, the results were not consistent, the origin date kept changing with his initial measurements. Rock Clocks The principle behind Pattinson's technique appeared sound. He used a method called uranium-lead dating to determine the age of the Earth. This method relies on obtaining specific minerals from rocks and measuring radioactive decay of uranium into lead over geological timescales. Uranium naturally degrades over a long period of time and through a number of steps uranium degrades into lead. This occurs at a very specific rate. Therefore, by measuring the ratios of uranium to lead in various geological samples, Pattinson could theoretically calculate a very accurate time of the rock's age. He would just need to measure a rock that was formed at the exact same time as the Earth. Fortunately for Pattinson's project, all the planets and any asteroids in our solar system formed at the very same time. All Pattinson needed to do was measure an asteroid that had landed on the Earth, and that would give an age of our planet and the solar system. The problem Pattinson was experiencing was in his samples. He was recording high amounts of lead far too much than he expected. Pattinson thought perhaps the samples were contaminated from the beaker he was using. He replaced that and there was still no improvement. He then found traces of lead on other pieces of lab equipment, then his clothes, and then his hair. In a short amount of time, in his zest to have an unadulterated geological sample, he shaved his head, banned wearing outside clothes into the lab, and created the cleanest and most isolated lab in the world. With his shaved head and fastidious attention to detail on lab cleanliness, he was more Walter White than Walter White was himself in Breaking Bad. But try as he might, no matter how clean and pure Pattinson made the lab, to misquote Tim Finn from Split Ends, I see lead, I see lead, I see lead. Seeing the Matrix Wherever or whatever Pattinson now measured, he saw lead. He saw lead inside the lab, and he definitely saw lead outside the lab. He must have felt like Neo from the Matrix when he became privy to seeing the world in ones and zeros, with everyone else ignorant to reality. Pattinson saw lead everywhere, whereas his colleagues were blind to it. Pattinson published papers and wore gas masks around the college campus in an attempt to raise awareness of the ubiquitous nature of lead. However, people felt that it must be harmless, and it had always probably been there. Driven more by a genuine curiosity than a health crusade, Pattinson travelled to all corners of the Earth to gather data, he ventured into the middle of the Pacific Ocean to collect samples from deep ocean tuna. Unsurprisingly, he found lead. This confirmed that lead was ubiquitous. He next needed to show its levels over time. To do this, he travelled to Greenland to measure lead in ice cores. Each year, a layer of ice is added to the previous years, and over a long period of time, they accumulate, and with the trapped material in the ice, it can give a long record of what was in the atmosphere during each year. 
What Pattinson discovered was that up until the Industrial Revolution, there was very little lead in the ice. During the Industrial Revolution, there was an increase in lead. However, Pattinson discovered there was an inflection in the data in the late 1920s. Lead levels rose exponentially to the alarming high levels in his present time. By Patton's calculations, humans in the 1960s had lead levels 100 times higher than prior to the Industrial Revolution. The explanation for the recent rapid rise in lead was clear. In the 1920s and the US, General Motors and DuPont teamed up to launch a new form of petrol that had small amounts of lead added. This was done to prevent the annoying knocking sound car engines made. Even during the initial production of this new fuel, the dangers of lead were evident. In all three production facilities, there were reports of severe psychosis and even death in some of the workers. However, at the time, and following our first rule, the dose makes the poison, it was felt that these adverse effects were due to high exposure and the general public would be safe. It's worth noting, though, that there was conflict, corruption and controversy back then, and the only data used to justify lead's apparent safety was from General Motors. The spokesperson for General Motors, Professor Robert Kehoe, claimed safety of lead with our second rule. He was quoted saying, Are our physiological mechanisms flexible after cope? It appears in the case of lead that they are. However, there is good evidence that Kehoe is making this conclusion based off cherry-picked data. After decades of campaigning, Pattinson and science finally prevailed. Despite extreme resistance, Pattinson pressed the idea that modern humans possessed excessive amounts of lead, and there was also a dose-response relationship, and also our central nervous systems are very vulnerable to lead poisoning. In the US in 1970, the Clean Air Act was passed, and this initiated the process of phasing out leaded gasoline. Over the following decades, strict deregulations were introduced to reduce lead emissions. Other countries began phasing out lead of petrol soon after, and by the 1990s, atmospheric lead levels were in free fall. By the 2000s, atmospheric lead levels were lower than they were before 1920. Likewise, blood lead levels in the U.S. have reduced by 94%, and the average blood levels are now less than 1 microgram per deciliter. This reduction has been suggested to have reduced the incidence of heart disease, stroke, and cancer. There's also compelling evidence that leaded petrol caused a decrease in IQ by 5 to 10 points. Finally, there's a convincing argument that the addition and then the subsequent removal of lead from petrol was the chief driver of the rise and fall of the US crime rate over the 20th century. Data from the FBI shows a near-perfect similarity in crime rates over the 20th century to atmospheric lead levels. The main difference is there is a lag in crime rate by about 20 years. The lead crime hypothesis suggests that as lead is a neurotoxin, prolonged exposure during childhood can affect brain function, such as impulsivity, and by the time a child has 20 odd years of exposure, they are more likely to commit crime. Lead is not the only factor that determines criminal activity, and the theory has its critics. However, the latest scientific publications still give the theory merit and suggest it's a significant factor. These are no longer the toxins you're looking for. The tragedy and ultimately triumph for lead pollution leads us to our next Jedi mind trick. Firstly, whilst lead levels have dropped dramatically, there are still isolated areas such as lead smeltering and iron ore processing where lead is a major health problem. But overall, if we take a look at the bigger picture, 
Not only lead, but many other pollutants are at the lowest levels they have been for decades and even centuries. Coupled with this, our health is improving. The world and our health are far from perfect, but they are the best they have been for a long time, and it appears to continue to be improving. The concept that the world is less polluted may feel counterintuitive, but that's quite normal as we are naturally pessimistic. Evolution has shaped us to be Debbie Downers. Known as a negativity bias, this psychological phenomenon refers to the tendency of humans to give more weight to negative information and experiences compared to positive ones. In other words, people are more affected by and tend to remember and react more strongly to negative events, emotions or information than positive ones. It is thought that evolution has favoured people holding a negative bias as this has helped with threat detection and survival, as well as adaptive learning from harmful mistakes and even social cohesion as negative experiences tend to strengthen social bonds. Misery loves company. The media appear to be aware of our negativity bias, and there is the well-known adage, if it leads, it bleeds. However, recent research shows that the percentage of negative to positive news in the media has increased dramatically over the past two decades. Even recent research shows music has become more negative over the past 20 years. It's all gone downhill since Bobby McFerrin won the Grammy in 1988 for his song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Debbie Downer does data. Our third Jedi mind trick for toxins, or many other areas in life, is to read the trend line, not the headline. In contrast to the doom and gloom, if we look at the data on pollution and health, it's unnaturally positive. For example, outdoor and indoor air pollution, whilst they are serious health issues in developing countries, have both fallen considerably over the past 30 years. In fact, looking over a much longer period, London air pollution is down 94% of the levels recorded in the year 1700 when accurate data is first available. If we compare the overall decline in pollution, particularly in developed countries, with the trends in health, there's cause for optimism. Not only is life expectancy at its highest, IQ has been steadily increasing over the past 100 years, a phenomenon known as the Flynn effect. There has also been a slow but steady decrease in the incidence of cancers, not just due to smoking cessation. By most, but not all metrics, humans are the healthiest they've been for a very long time, and some of this could be contributed to a cleaner environment. Some argue that the secret to a cleaner environment, also somewhat counterintuitive, is more development and progress, not less. This is known as the environmental Kuznets curve. This model suggests that as a country industrializes and goes through economic development, the environment deteriorates and pollution increases. A good example currently is China, India and many countries in Africa. However, when a country achieves a certain level of economic growth, pollution and environmental degradation decreases as the society now has the time resources and psychological safety to care more for the environment. Innovation, technology and improved regulations also play a significant part and are more readily available in developed countries. The case in London of air pollution over the past 300 years is a good example of the concept of the environmental Kuznets curve. In 1700, the air pollution measured by suspended particulate matter was already very high at 259 micrograms per cubic metre. The World Health Organization suggests levels should be less than 10. Air pollution in London peaked in 1891 at 623 micrograms per cubic metre, 
and rapidly declined and nowadays averages between 5 to 10 micrograms per cubic metre. There is solid empirical evidence for the environmental Kuznets curve in regards to air pollution, lead pollution and plastic waste, just to name a few. Indoor air pollution is an under-recognised health hazard despite the World Health Organisation listing it as the world's largest single environmental health risk. The primary culprit of indoor air pollution is not evil synthetic chemicals leaching from the furniture, building materials or consumer goods, it's old school pollution from the necessity to burn solid fuels such as firewood, crop, waste and even animal dung for cooking and heating. If developing countries can grow in advance to using electricity or natural gas for heating and cooking, then this would make a huge dent in the current estimated 2.31 million deaths a year from indoor air pollution. Whilst most metrics in health have improved, there are some toxin-induced health conditions that continue to be recorded in high levels in developed countries. Let's take a look at these to explore our fourth Jedi mind trick. Lisa, a fashionable and petite woman in her 50s, one day entered the shop and tripped. This wasn't the first time. It had occurred several times recently. She had noticed that her feet hadn't been rising high enough as she walked, and her toes would often catch rugs, just like today as she entered the store. Today's fall was problematic. She fractured several ribs. Whilst recovering over the next month, Lisa developed tingling sensations from her fingertips to her shoulders. These would keep her awake at night and distracted during the day. This feeling of pins and needles soon was experienced in her lips and tongue. Next, Lisa developed weakness in her legs and was barely able to stand up or walk. This was getting serious. Lisa was admitted to hospital for investigations. The tests and checks were extensive. For 28 days, Lisa had blood tests, brain scans, lumbar punctures and nerve studies in an attempt to trace out the cause. Could it be a toxin responsible for these symptoms in a nervous system? The doctors were still unsure, but they concluded that Lisa was suffering an autoimmune disease as her immune system was attacking the insulation known as myelin in her nerves. This was resulting in miscommunication between nerve cells causing the numbness and tingling. Immune modulation medication was immediately supplied to Lisa via intravenous administration. Alas, it had no effect and Lisa was discharged and spent day after day on the land room sofa. She was now wheelchair bound. Lisa was trapped in an incapacitated body for three years. By this stage, her family began noticing something else. Lisa appeared to be increasingly confused and often confabulated stories. A return to the doctor with the new symptoms made the doctors question the original diagnosis of autoimmunity. With the doctor now at a loss, Lisa's husband Johnny disclosed some information to the doctor that he promised Lisa he would never share. Johnny informed the doctor that Lisa had an addiction to alcohol. Progressively over the past several years, Lisa had been steadily drinking more and more. Initially two glasses of wine became five, then eight. As the wine increased, the food intake decreased and her frame progressively became thinner and thinner. With the knowledge of the alcohol intake and malnutrition, the doctor suspected a thiamine or vitamin B1 deficiency. Indeed, blood tests revealed Lisa's thiamine level was well below the lower limit of the normal range. Immediately, Lisa received intravenous administration of thiamine three times a day. Her levels returned to normal in a few days, and there was some response to her symptoms. 
but the response was painfully slow. It took a year before Lisa could even dress herself. Choose your poison. This was a case from the brilliant book A Molecule Away from Madness by Sarah Manning Peskin and highlights our next Jedi mind trick. For many of us, particularly living in industrialised countries, we seldom get inadvertently poisoned from covert environmental toxins. Instead, we often choose our own poisons, typically from alcohol or drug misuse. Lisa's case illustrates a more rare expression of the long-term effects of alcohol addiction, but there is solid evidence that consistent moderate to heavy alcohol consumption is linked to common chronic disease. Most notably is cancer, and a recent report in the prestigious publication The Lancet looks at the global burden of cancer in 2020 attributed to alcohol consumption. Roughly speaking, it showed that consistently drinking two or more drinks a day contributes to around 4-8% to of cancer cases each year. Overall, men recorded more cases than women. However, women in Australia, New Zealand and Western Europe recorded levels almost as high as men from those regions. If you consider the wider impact of alcohol misuse, it further reinforces that the toxins we should be looking for are often the ones from our own behaviours. If you consider the injuries and fatalities from driving under the influence of alcohol, up to 1 in 5 weekend admissions to hospital emergency departments are alcohol-related, up to a fifth of drownings and a large proportion of suicide is attributed to alcohol intoxication, then it becomes even more revealing. Now, I'm not a teetotaler, and I'm not here to judge people or preach, I simply want to highlight that by sifting through the data, my interpretation is that the demographic of this audience will be more likely to be impacted by alcohol than by some speculative environmental toxin. Our fourth Jedi mind trick is to look first within before looking to the outside. To discuss our fifth Jedi mind trick, we can finally circle back to Erin Brockovich and her hunt for toxins in Leroy. Brockovich and her team assembled at Leroy, keen to perform testing in the town and to confirm her main suspicion of trichloroethylene from the 1971 train wreck. Brockovich wasn't the first to test the town. In fact, the New York State Department of Health, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, and the Environmental Protection Agency all had previously performed extensive tests in the school and the wider town. This testing found no abnormality. Brockovich was of the view that they hadn't looked hard enough. Brockovich and her team conducted their own testing, and to misquote Bono from U2, but she still hadn't found what she was looking for. The tests couldn't uncover any toxins. Now, before the media storm had taken off in Leroy, instead of suggesting toxins, the primary conclusion from the local medical practitioners who assessed the girls was that these ticks were stress-induced. Dr. Laszlo Metzler, a neurologist who was treating most of the girls, believes the original case Katie most likely did suffer from a Tourette's-like disorder. Then, teenagers in the close-knit friendship group, who are naturally more vulnerable, caught a social contagion. Essentially, a functional neurological disorder spread amongst the group. Functional neurological disorders, or FNDs, are a group of medical conditions where individuals experience neurological symptoms that cannot be explained by any underlying structural or organic brain or nervous system problem. These symptoms are thought to be related to abnormal functioning of the nervous system, 
rather than a structural issue. Some say a software problem rather than a hardware problem. FNDs are quite common and some studies suggest that they are the most common presentations to neurology clinics. Unfortunately, due to the rising tension in the community about the origins of the illness, which dramatically caught fire once the media got wind of the story, the idea of FND got drowned out and was scoffed at and dismissed. The media had built up a boogeyman and wanted a toxin lynching, and Brockovich was now the head of the lynch mob. Despite the resistance from the media, Dr. Metzler was confident in the diagnosis of a social contagion of FND, also known as mass psychogenic illness. This phenomenon is where the subconscious of the affected individual replicates similar symptoms it's encountered, often in response to trauma or perceived stress. Although it suffers from stigma, mass psychogenic illness is well known and has been seen in communities in all parts of the world. The unique expression in geographic region is sometimes known as culture-bound syndrome. Regarding misdiagnosis of toxicity, dozens of cases of outbreaks in Afghanistan and Iran have occurred in schoolgirls in the past decade where these schoolgirls experienced headache, dizziness, nausea and loss of consciousness. Poisoning was blamed, but yet again no toxin could be discovered. Experts suggest these are all cases of this subconscious, yet very real phenomena of mass psychogenic illness. It's worth noting that these symptoms are not faked or made up or under conscious control. Experts suggest mass psychogenic illness often occurs in vulnerable minorities who are feeling oppressed or don't have a voice. The subconscious, in a sense, is crying out for help, with the sufferer having no control over the symptoms. Now, regarding the patients of Leroy, some experts suggest a nuance to this label of mass psychogenic illness. Instead of these girls suffering from psychic pain, as other populations, these girls were suffering a sociogenic illness. That is, due to the rabid and frenzy media storm, this fueled the condition. The media was feasting off stories and diving into backgrounds and skeletons of the sufferers and their families. Dr. Mitchell was concerned about this and noticed that the patients who avoided the media saw a rapid improvement in their symptoms. A few months after it began, these patients were symptom-free. Dr. Metzler then encouraged the remaining patients to avoid the media, and soon after, their symptoms also disappeared. Would you start horsing around? With the lessons from Leroy, this comes to our fifth Jedi mind trick. Again, this can apply not only to toxins, but to wider suspicious agents or even diseases. In the late 1940s, Dr. Theodore Woodward a professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine coined the proverb, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Woodward was referring to when diagnosing a patient's symptoms, common ailments should be considered as more probable than rare ones. This axiom can also be applied when searching for the cause of an illness. Think about the more probable cause than the rare ones. Unfortunately, due to the stigma of FND and the escalating media storm in Leroy, the probable cause of illness was dismissed and the rare one appeared much more exciting and newsworthy. For most people, it's rare that environmental toxins are causing poor health or overt symptoms and pathology due to factors already mentioned earlier. There are some populations that could be more likely that they are affected by toxins due to their occupation or area of residence, but I would suggest this is an exception rather than the rule. <laughs> Our fifth Jedi mind trick is to think horses, not zebras. My body is a temple, and you need to know that. 
Before we wrap up, I want to discuss one final component around toxicity. This is my half Jedi mind trick. I give it half a mark because it's not about toxins per se, but a framework on why we innately worry about toxins and broadcast our concerns. There's two parts to it. Firstly, there's the concept that we possess, to a lesser or greater extent, a desire to have a toxin-free body. Psychologist Jonathan Haidt has developed the Moral Foundations Theory, which proposes that there are several universal moral foundations upon which human societies and cultures build their moral values and judgments. One of these foundations is the Purity or Sanctity Foundation. The others are care, fairness, liberty, loyalty and authority. Haidt suggests that like our oral palate, where we have different tendencies to prefer sour, sweet, salty, etc. Likewise, we all have our own unique moral palate. For some, purity or sanctity is very important. The foundation of purity revolves around the idea of purity, cleanliness, and the avoidance of behaviours or substances that are considered physically, morally, or spiritually impure. This foundation has been influenced by the psychological principles of disgust and contamination and our motivation to avoid them. It drives us to aspire to lead a more natural way of life, which is often found in different religions all across the world. The Purity Foundation is behind the widespread notion that, that the body is a temple, and our temples can be desecrated not only through immoral actions, but also pollutants. This can help explain why even if synthetic toxins have been extensively demonstrated to be safe, many people will claim that they still have a strong aversion to it because it's not natural and therefore doesn't feel right. There's a good argument that this foundation of seeking purity can be a feature rather than a bug in our psychology. Disgust has evolved to prevent the transmission of infectious disease and even prevent inbreeding. However, our desire for purity can overshoot and we are vulnerable to the naturalistic fallacy, which is the belief that something is good or right because it's natural, or bad or wrong because it's unnatural. I will use the example of organic food to explore why we have a tendency to want to feel pure. Rather than explore the evidence if organic food is more nutritious, contains less pesticides, is better than the environment, etc., I want to look at some reasons why people choose organic, and many of these reasons may be subconscious. Alan Levinovitz, a professor of religious studies at James Marsden University, in his book Natural, The Seductive Myth of Nature's Goodness, highlights the strong moral connection between eating organic and this purity foundation. In many ways, eating organic can seen as more as a religious experience than due to scientific rationale. Again, that's not a criticism, but just an observation and an organic food for thought. So the first part is that we have an innate tendency to view our body as a temple and we want it to be clean and toxin-free. Now to the second part. To understand this, Let's have a quick look at why Charles Darwin was so angered and troubled by the sight of a peacock's tail. Darwin was perplexed by the elaborate and colourful tails of peacocks because they seemed to be counterintuitive to his theory of natural selection. According to his theory, traits that were advantageous for survival and reproduction should be favoured by evolution. However, peacock's tails appear to be a burden rather than an advantage. Their large size and conspicuousness made peacocks more vulnerable to predators and it seemed unlikely that such extravagant tails would enhance their survival. Darwin eventually resolved the puzzle by developing the theory of sexual selection, which suggests that certain traits evolve not because they provide direct survival advantage, but because they are favoured by members of the opposite sex during mating. 
In the case of peacocks, he proposed that the elaborate tails evolved because they were so attractive to the peahens, female peacocks, and peacocks with more extravagant tails had a better chance of mating and passing on their genes. Since then, researchers have further developed the concept and suggest the elaborate peacock's tail is a costly signal to females. The tail is a genuine indicator that this peacock is so fit and healthy that it can afford to spend large amounts of energy and resources on developing a pretty, but functionally completely useless, tail. This concept is called conspicuous consumption, and there is a lot of evidence that humans are one species who do this in spades. Feel the power of the dark side. Now back to toxins and organic food. In recent years, several research groups have investigated the social and psychological factors in organic food consumption. The title of a July 2023 study sounds like it was uttered by Emperor Palpatine when he said, feel the power of the dark side. It suggests there could be less altruistic reasons why people consume organic. The paper is titled, The Dark Side of Going Green, and the study looked at the dark triad personality traits and organic food consumption. Now, the dark triad refers to a set of three personality traits. One, Machiavellianism, which involves a focus on manipulation, cunning, and willingness to exploit others for personal gain. Two, narcissism. Individuals have an inflated sense of self-importance, a strong need for admiration, and a lack of empathy for others. Psychopathy involves a lack of empathy, remorse, guilt, as well as impulsive and antisocial behavior. No surprise then that the dark triad is viewed as socially and emotionally undesirable behaviors and is linked with manipulative and self-serving tendencies. Through cleverly constructed questionnaires, the researchers found that indeed the dark triad traits were detected in organic consumers. The data suggested the triad was driving the behaviours of virtue signalling and status consumption, and organic consumers had a need for praise from others. Just like the peacock's tail, this research suggests that purchasing of organic food is a genuine costly signal that the consumers want to broadcast, and they want to be acknowledged for it. Organic food is typically more expensive, and this type of conspicuous consumption can show others they have the social standing that they can do this. The research also suggests that, at least on a more subconscious level, organic consumers want to be acknowledged for performing a virtuous act by buying this seemingly pure food. Again, I'm not discussing this research to mock or make judgment of people's purchasing consumption behaviours. What I want to highlight is this is part of human nature. It's also not exclusive to organic food consumption. For example, studies show that only 2.3% of donations to charity are devoid of any egotistic drive, and even most anonymous donations aren't really that anonymous. In many ways, we have evolved to benefit from virtue signaling and conspicuous consumption. Perhaps consuming organic is just another way of demonstrating our human nature. But choosing to eat organic probably doesn't really have much to do with the levels of toxins in the food, or improving our physical health. It could be more about improving our psychological health, through greater status and recognition. Indeed, other recent research on organic foods shows that consumers who buy organic foods are perceived by others as more virtuous, altruistic, and sincere. So to summarize our last half Jedi mind trick, we have an innate tendency for purity, and we like to leverage our perception of purity and status. Most of this is often outside of our conscious awareness. Now, finally to misquote Admiral Akbar from Return of the Jedi, it's a wrap. Time to wrap up this episode. Environmental chemicals can pose a threat to our health. However, when we correct for several cognitive biases and our normal deep moral beliefs, environmental poisoning is more the exception rather than the rule. 
If we consider the dose-response relationship, the fact that our bodies can be somewhat resilient, and the environment now is overall cleaner than it has been for our lifetime, then environmental chemicals can be seen less likely to be causing us harm. Further, if we consider that our own behaviours such as smoking, alcohol and drug overuse provide the main sorts of toxins we are exposed to, then we can feel more in control of our health than the fear of inadvertently being exposed to toxins from air, food and water. In any case, our fifth Jedi mind trick reminds us that toxins are zebras and we should first look for common horses causing ill health, such as psychological stresses. Finally, despite all the convincing data I may have presented on how environmental toxicity is unlikely, this may not persuade anyone, as we have an innate moral tendency to seek purity almost in a religious fashion. This is normal. And likewise, it's normal human behaviour to demonstrate our purity and seek status from it. It's understandable that we express hostility towards synthetic environmental chemicals, but if we're able to pause and listen to our inner Obi-Wan voice, like Luke Skywalker was guided by, perhaps Obi-Wan can convince us that these really aren't the toxins we're looking for. With that, I say thanks for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon, and may the Force be with you. You've been listening to The Sift Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. Leaving a review really helps us out. The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your qualified healthcare provider before starting any new treatment or discontinuing an existing treatment.